this afternoon, please, uh, to James chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I'd like to thank every, all the ladies that cooked the meals for us this afternoon. It was very delicious. I appreciated it greatly. I'm not sure if any of the men cooked, but if any of the men out there made a meal or a dessert, thank you as well. And uh, it's good to have new members. Uh, welcome to, um, to our fellowship. I hear you're from Pennsylvania, so um, we got two Pennsylvania people here. So as Packer fans, we need to really rally this NFL season, not let them take over. Don't want to see too many Pittsburgh Steelers flags out there or nothing. we got to drown them out, block their cars in, whatever we got to do. So, all right. <clears throat> and James, if you want a title of the message, I, don't, I still haven't quite uh, mastered PowerPoint like our uh, senior pastor has. So, um, I mean, senior not as in, there's two pastors, but age. <laughs> You've made fun of me before, so i got to get you back. Uh, the title of the message here in James 1 is going to be The Making of a Mature Christian. And there's, uh, if you look at the events of our country right now, uh, what has happened culturally, what is culturally accepted, there's a great need for mature Christians. And a little bit of an introduction here to... Uh, the writer of this book, um, he was uh, James was the half brother of Jesus, and at the time of this writing, he was also the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and he's also from uh, Paul. It's considered one of the pillars of the faith and pillars of the church there in Jerusalem. However, if you look in verse one, there you notice that James does not pull his rank, so to speak. He does not glory in the fact that he is a relative of our Lord and Savior, although he very easily could have. That's something to be very impre- that's something that would be uh, very impressive, or that he is ahead of um, the center of the church there in Jerusalem, where Christianity went forth into all of the all of the world. But he does not brag on that. He introduces himself as a servant of God of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that has to take, uh, that shows right there to me that he was a very humble man because who here would want to admit being a servant to their brother? I don't think any of us would. And some, uh, being the oldest, I can, I would not want to introduce myself as, hi, I'm Dan Peterson, servant of Nate Peterson or Jeremiah or heaven forbid, my youngest brother Elijah. So we see James is a very humble man. We see that about his character. And we also notice from, um, from James' life that he was not a believer until after the resurrection. You see that in John chapter 7, verse 5, where it talks about that uh, Jesus had been preaching and his own family did not believe him. But we look in Acts 1.14, where they are gathered in the house there waiting for the Pentecost, that uh, Mary was there and with Jesus' brethren, and that they did believe on Christ. So after the resurrection. And on a little rabbit trail there, on a side note as well, James is a, also is a book that is full of rabbit trails. It, uh, some individuals who've written commentaries have uh, seemed to, in my opinion, have criticized James for how he's presented his message. I won't do that, but I will follow his example and take a little bit of a rabbit trail, purposeful rabbit trail here. Looking at James' life and the fact that he was not saved until after 
the resurrection of Christ. He grew up with Jesus. That ought to tell us something about evangelism. Some people uh, or some groups preach a lifestyle evangelism. That is not in itself is not enough. Lifestyle and your works, as we even look at here in James, if you uh, turn over to James chapter 2, look in verses uh, 24 and uh, 26 there. I had it marked. You see then how by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Your works are supposed to justify your faith. But in the Great Commission, Mark 16, 15, we are commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So getting back from that rabbit trail, just figured I'd point that out there. Um, Another thing about the life of James we see, tradition, and I'll quote my source here for this tradition, uh, as uh, Wilmington's Guide to the Bible, tradition states that James was martyred shortly before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Many Christians, many Jews, fled the city around that time before, uh, as Titus laid a siege to it and eventually conquered Jerusalem. James, before all that happened, was martyred by the religious leaders. He was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple. He survived the fall, but was stoned to death after he had survived the fall from being thrown from the temple. So now that we know a little bit about James here, we're going to look at what he is uh, talking about and how to be a mature Christian. Point number one, a mature Christian is made through suffering. And that will be the main point of the rest of this message, and all the other points underneath will be sub-points. So point number one, a mature Christian is made through suffering. We see in verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. We look there at that word perfect. Some, some that I have heard have tried to use that as a preaching for lifestyle, or not lifestyle evangel, but a sinless perfection. And we'll talk about that a little later, but that's not what it's talking about. Perfect there is talking about, it comes from the same Greek word that uh, means mature means complete. It does not mean without fault. So I want us to realize that whenever you're in James here, it's a theme that holds consistent. Perfect in the book of James is not used to mean without fault. It is used to mean complete and mature. And we see here, a sub-point under that would be be joyful in our trials. You may ask, how are we supposed to be joyful in our trials? No illustration here. We're supposed to be joyful in our trials, much like an athlete working out. All of us, I don't think many of us who were involved in sports necessarily liked the pain that you experienced after workouts or the pain after a two-a-day practice or um, I, in wrestling, what we'd have to do, we'd stand around the circle, the wrestling circle there, everybody facing inward, doing up and down, sprawling on your face. I'm not going to try to do that in a suit. I might tear it. So that was miserable in a 110-degree environment because somebody had to gain weight, heaven forbid, and had to cut that weight. So you're not supposed to, you may ask how we're supposed to join trials. Well, we do it every day, the different trials that we have. Athletes do it in their working out. A mother training up a child. As I watch my wife train our little son, it's not fun when, and I know it, kind of gets on her a little bit when Rick goes, walks up to something he's not supposed to touch, like 
<clears throat> an outlet or starts playing with the door, and Brenda has to tell him no. She doesn't take joy in that because he gets his little pooch. But what she does take joy in is when he's running towards the stairs full speed, doesn't know what he's doing, she tells him no, and he stops before tumbling down the stairs. That's what she takes joy in. Or even as an inventor, someone at your job, I did not take joy trying to learn how to drive a truck, or those of you who have used heavy equipment, trying to learn how to back that thing up. That was no fun. I destroyed many orange cones. There was It was orange death, as with everybody else. But you take joy in when you're able to back up into a tight corner, and you don't hit anything. Because aluminum trailer of against concrete wall, aluminum trailer loses, as we all know. So, now you may ask what types of suffering or temptation he's talking about here. This is talking about diverse temptations. These are not something t- temptations that can be avoided. Because notice there where it says, um, it says when you fall into diverse temptations, not if. So we know these are hardships and trials that cannot be avoided, things that we're all going to have to deal with. All of us are going to have to deal with some point in our time the death of a loved one. Death is something that comes natural. You say, how can you rejoice in that? Well, you rejoice in what comes after it and what is working because it works patience, and patience makes perfect. And oftentimes on a... And uh, we see here where James goes off on one of his uh, rabbit trails. So if you're taking notes, there is an intentional rabbit trail there. So you know those who saw me turn the page. Page one is done. We're a third of the way there. So hang with me. Don't fall, don't fall asleep. I know it's humid out. I know we all got full bellies. Hopefully some of us had the coffee. But try to stick with me here. We look down here in verse 5. It says, if any of you will lack wisdom... I believe everybody here, we're all going to encounter trials and tribulations that we don't think we have the means to solve. When something, I'm not sure what happens, something breaks in the house and you don't know how you're going to pay your bill because it's something that you desperately need. Like a refrigerator goes bad, or just a person's experience, refrigerator goes out, you didn't know it, didn't catch in time, all your food goes bad, and you've already maxed out your grocery budget and your paycheck isn't for another two weeks. He's talking about trials similar to that, financial trials, not, and he deals with the different trials later on, or not uh, temptations later on. So these are the trials he's talking about. And when you ask this wisdom of God, you can't just ask it from God and say, God, give me wisdom, God, give me wisdom. It say, you look down there, and it's in verse 6, it says, but let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering. We see here that when we ask this favor, these, this wisdom of God, we cannot ask it as unstable or as faithless men. Because it says in the verse there, for, in verse 7, For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. And you can take a look at that and say, Well, wait a minute, God says that he giveth wisdom liberally. Well, God is sovereign, and our word liberal tends to have a negative connotations in our circle because we think of it as liberal politics. Liberal simply means you just give things away with no requirements attached to it. 
Now, now we all know how that can be bad with politicians. However, that is not bad when we are getting wisdom from God because God is sovereign. God owns everything. It is His to give away. He is, it's limitless what God can do. And so God, even in that, has a right to put requirements on what He does. We see also in Proverbs where someone who refuses the counsel of the Lord, God literally mocks them when their calamity comes. So we cannot ask it in an un- as unstable people or as faithless men. And why should we rejoice? Look on uh, how we should rejoice there in verse 9. It says, Let the brother of low regree- degree rejoice in that he is exalted. One of the reasons to rejoice in your trials and tribulations is because if you're someone who's not necessarily a pastor or a leader or a deacon or something like that, it gives you a chance. You don't have, you might not have many chances to uh, minister or to show God's work or how it might be shown through you. However, when these trials and tribulations come along, now you have that opportunity, which an office may not have granted you, but these trials and tribulations have. You look down the next verse there, it says, but the rich in that he is made low. The rich is to rejoice when these trials and tribulations and sufferings come because he is humbled and he is able to remain, he is humiliated and doesn't get too full of himself. And he is reminded, we see here in verse 11, for the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, for it withereth the grass and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also so the rich man fade in his ways. As an example here of looking at riches not lasting forever, I want us to look back and think about what we remember about Abraham. Abraham was the patriarch of Israel. He was a very wealthy man. He owned much cattle. He had many servants. So much that when an army invaded a neighboring city, Sodom, and took his nephew captive, Abraham had enough men and enough servants that he was able to raise his own private army and conquer this army that took over Sodom and rescue his nephew. So Abraham was a rich man, yet that is not what we remember most about Abraham. What we remember is the Abrahamic covenant when he came out of Israel, and that, or when he came out of the land of Ur and made his way towards the promised land, leaving behind most of the source of his wealth. Most of his wealth was gained there in Ur and came from his father. We see that when famine struck this land, he had to go down into Egypt. And then he was eventually able to come back out of Egypt. Or we see, we remember his faith in that God would give him a son. And Isaac was given to him in his old age, well past the age of uh, childbearing. Or, yes, well, I'm not going to go into that. Um, We also see after his son Isaac, who Abraham had in his old age, who is the promised seed, we see how, we remember how Isaac's, or not Isaac, how uh, Abraham's faith led him to be willing to sacrifice his son. So these trials and tribulations, or these trials, they give you, a ch- the rich man, a chance to be humble and something to remember them by other than riches. Because in Proverbs, we see how wealthy men tend to rest on their laurels, rest on their ridges. It is their strength. It is their strong city. 
And it says here that the rich brethren are to, re- to rejoice when they fall into these trials because it gives them a chance to have something of fruit that lasts and that endures. We'll move on to the, the next one here. Uh, point number two would be looking at temptations. Now, we just looked at uh, diverse temptations. Those can be best described as trials because those are something that nobody can avoid. Some of those, it doesn't specifically say in there that those trials don't come from God or those temptations do not come from God. These temptations do not come from God. We look in verse 13, it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. This temptation we're talking about now comes not from happenstance in life. It comes from our own lust. These are the things we bring on ourselves through our own lack of faith or through our own lust and not walking guard around our uh, spirit. And it says here, it says the consequence of these temptations, if we yield to them, it says then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. We see here that and after these temptations, it's not really given much of instructions on how to deal with them as we have to we had after the diverse temptations there. We see simply the warning, do not err. It doesn't tell us how uh, to avoid or doesn't give us very many specifics that some people take a look at this. And I've seen different individuals try to show me that this means that uh, as long as you don't uh, you can be tempted in something, but as Pastor was saying about earlier about people who believe in sinless perfection, it's like, well, I was tempted, but I just made a mistake. I didn't sin. Well, that's not true because you look in Matthew and it talks about if a man looks on a woman in lust, he's already committed adultery with her. So you don't have to commit the actual action for it to be a sin. A sin can be just something that you think. So... Another caution against the false doctrine of sinless perfection. But we are warned here. It says, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Lord, from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth, that we should be the firstfruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. In these verses, we see that we are not to use the wrath of man to try to battle these temptations or trials. Often, uh, oftentimes, I'll admit in my own life, when something goes wrong, some of these little trials that come up, um, either something happens at work, something breaks, I feel wronged. Oftentimes, my carnal instinct is to fly off the handle and I want to get that individual back for what he did to me. How dare they do this? I have done nothing wrong. That is not the way we are to handle these situations. We are to, as it says here in the verse, we are to be 
swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And I believe that also ties in with our Sunday school lesson this morning as restoring those who have sinned. Not to be quick to jump, to jump them with their sins and be judgmental, but to be slow. Just listen first, be very slow to speak. And it tells us here another way to get away, to avoid some of these temptations. We see in verse 21 finally. It says, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Naughtiness there is, uh, you mean malice, evil. It's not something where you're, we're also taught as a kid, oh, that's naughty, don't do that. And it becomes almost a funny thing. That's not what the naughtiness is. It's actually something that is evil. It is malice. We are to lay all that aside because we see above in the uh, verse 20, it does not work the righteousness of God. And as mature Christians, we must lay that aside. And then we also see that a mature Christian is not just a hearer of the word, but a doer. It says in verse 22, be, not doers of, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, Deceiving your own self. A cross-reference for that would be in James 4, verse 17, where it says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And we also see the warning here of how just hearing the word doesn't make you righteous, or doesn't help you towards your temptation. It doesn't make you mature to just, or to merely uh, sit in church and hear the word of God, or to just merely read your Bible, you must actually apply what you have read. You must take it out and use it in your daily lives. We see the warning here in 20, verse 23. If any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what matter of man he was." That I know some of us uh, men, we can pro- we probably are uh, Jordan and I. We kind of work in fields where um, you don't necessarily need to uh, get your hair all done or your beard trimmed to do your job properly. It's uh, it's pretty awesome um, being low maintenance and be able to get up five minutes before you need to leave for work and be perfectly ready to go. You don't need to do anything. He's- you're not going to be interacting with anybody. You're just going to, or for him, he's going to be cutting down trees. They don't care what he looks like. And um, I'm going to be driving a truck. And most people, as I'm driving down the road, I'm too high up for them to see me. So what do they care? But this verse shows us the foolishness of, uh, there was a time where I did work a job where I did have to go see people. And I did have to represent the company well. Or I come to the church here, I'm representing this church as I speak and as I stand before you, and it would not be appropriate for me to just wake up, look at myself in the, in the mirror, eyes drooping, teeth unbrushed, hair disheveled, just an all-around mess, man, eh, good enough. That's what we're like if we hear the Word of God and we don't do anything with it. It's very ap- It shows a great deal of disrespect, just as if someone were to come and stand before you unprepared to be very disrespectful. So let's not be disrespectful to God in that way. And then, finally, all the way at the very end, we see three ways. These are not the three total ways 
that this maturity is manifest in verses 26 and 27. We see there, it says, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. So we see our speech shows or backs up our works and shows our maturity. Oftentimes, those of us who have had to hire folks, or I know there are some here who have had to pick out people for job crews, you can tell a lot about an individual's maturity by how he speaks. And that is how we as Christians need to remember to present ourselves. We need to speak as a Christian ought to speak and heed what is spoken of in the earlier verse there. It says we're, we're to put aside all filthiness. That means filthiness of the tongue. That means your vulgar uh, conversation. Some of, or some of us come from fields where it's hard to do. I know I'm not the only one here who served in the military. In the military, <laughs> every other word is a curse word. It just That's the way it is, which is also a reason why I'd warn any of young men who are attempting to go into there to make sure that you are very strong in your faith and not just rely on your strength and your faith, but when, if, when and if you do go, make sure you find people of like faith around you or get out of that environment, go to church, find a church, find a place where people can keep you accountable. Our pastor uh, used an illustration in Sunday school of not being a burden. However, it there is no, I think pastor would agree with me, this I'm not trying to contradict him, if there's a burden that is too heavy for you to bear, that there's no shame in asking for help. So a little bit of a rabbit trail, following the example of James here um, in our sermon. We look down in the first part of verse 27. It says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. It, I'll sum that down into the simple term, care for the needy. How you treat folks that are needy, how you care for them, that is a true demonstration of how of your faith and of your Christianity and of your maturity. Uh, I'm very happy that many of us uh, take a lot of time out of their, your summers to go work at camp. Um, I know some of the type of kids that you are working with, um, having worked in the inner city of Gary for about four years. It's not easy. It's, um, but that the work that you do in caring for those people, who sometimes you're the only person who will show them any type of love, that shows your maturity as a Christian. And the final way, in a way of great importance, particularly for us young folks, is purity. You see then the last part of that verse 27, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That's talking about staying pure, in particular the sense of sensual uh, purity. That is very important. It's something that is very difficult to do in our day and age. And young men, I've uh, pastor has talked about it in different uh, passages. I've uh, preached on it in Proverbs. It's full of warnings for young men, the importance of maintaining your purity, staying out of situations where, staying out of compromising situations. 
And those are something that even ladies need to be careful of, uh, sadly enough. But men have the greatest responsibility in that regard. Because, I'll go off on another little bit of a rabbit trail here. Um, I know some of us here, uh, Isaac, congratulations, you found a wife. Um, some of us here are in the stage of our life where we're looking for a wife. Hint, hint, Jordan, Nathan. Um, not trying to hook you guys up for nothing, but <laughs> if I nominate people to you or my wife nominates you certain friends on Facebook, we're not dropping any hints or nothing. So this is something that as you go through that stage of your life, it is very important. It is something you will not regret. It is... Uh, and not being bragging here, a lot of this was also a team effort by my wife and I. I'm very glad that we went down and met in front of a man of God and God. And we could say that we were pure. And it was difficult making it through high school and even Christian college with the temptations that abounded. But there's no substitute for that purity. And those of you that work with other men out in the world who did not, were not either taught that, taught to remain essentially pure, you listen to the problems that they have. Um, if you stay pure, you avoid a lot of those. I, I can speak from personal experience. I don't despise any of the young ladies I dated and... It didn't work out because we didn't do anything that would leave yourself exposed and leave your emotions that you're only supposed to have for your wife compromised. It just, I don't have to worry about, I mean, it's okay, just, it just didn't work out. You're my sister in Christ. It's, it's okay, no hard feelings, just... Go on your way. Good luck. You'll need it. And um, <laughs> sorry, that was a little that was a little harsh. As I'll go on my way. It's something that you cannot replace. And I'd ask you to, because I mean, a lot of these trials that will hit you will be the peer pressures that you face in high school or college or from your peers. But if you, guys, if you young men don't take anything away from this message other than that, be pure. That's what I can tell you. You won't regret it. It'll be hard. You won't regret it. Uh, this time, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this day.